If you're learning a piece of music, there's one thing you really need to be doing outside of your physical practice on the instrument, even before you learn that piece. You may already be doing this, and if so, I encourage you to do it more. And that thing is listening to recordings of your piece. I ended up having a lot more to say than I thought on this subject, so this is actually going to be a two-parter. Part one this week is all about the why you should be listening to recordings with some pretty in-depth explanations. There are a few things that you can actually only learn by listening that you can't learn by reading the notes on the page, and that's the kind of thing that we'll be talking about. Part two, which will be out next week, is more of a practical guide where I'll talk about how you can find a good recording, which recordings to avoid, and what you can do to push things one step further. And what's going to be really interesting next week is that I'm actually going to walk through a few recordings with you, and we'll do some guided listening and some analysis of those pieces and compare them, and that's something that you can then do with your own pieces. But first, hello and welcome to Violin Class the podcast for people who are learning the violin as an adult. My name is Julia. I'm a professional violinist and violin teacher, and I'm here to share my tips and experience to make learning the violin a little bit easier. If while you're listening, you realize that you find this episode informative and that you like this podcast and find it helpful, I'd really appreciate it if you could share your support by taking a second to leave a rating and review. As of today, Violin Class has 43 reviews on Apple Podcasts, which I think is pretty amazing. So huge thank you to everyone who's left one so far. Without further ado, here's why you should be listening to recordings. First of all, you'll make way less reading errors. Listening is going to create a model in your head of what your piece is supposed to sound like. Now, this is going to be open to your interpretation as well, but Not only will this give you an idea of the mood of the work, it'll make it really clear as to what the notes are. That's one of the reasons that some of the first songs that you'll learn as a violinist or in any instrument are nursery rhymes or folk tunes. If you grew up in North America, you know Twinkle Twinkle Little Star very well. It's so ingrained in your mind that any divergence from the melody will be really obvious to you, and that's why we start with that when we're learning it on the violin. Imagine you're trying to learn Spanish, but you've never heard it spoken. You could study different pronunciation guides, but that's never going to really be a replacement for listening to a native speaker of the language. Just by watching a show, you'll learn that the written words are supposed to sound like this, but also many other nuances such as timing, accents, inflection, grammatical structures, slang, and so much more. I know many people who said that they actually learned their second language this way through watching shows, including my husband, who's originally from France. So he had English class at school, but when he moved to Canada, he realized that A, he couldn't understand the North American accent because he had only studied British English, and B, he couldn't actually understand anything because he hadn't spent any time in an English-speaking country, and people just spoke a little bit too fast use a lot of slang, and it was just generally an accent he was not familiar with. He got the hang of English really, really quickly, though, and I attribute it to three factors. First, he was studying at an English-speaking university where almost all of the instruction was in English. Second, uh, two of his roommates were Anglophone and spoke no French at all, 
And third, he watched a lot of South Park back in those days. And what all those factors have in common is that he was constantly listening to English all day, every day. And at first, he didn't have the vocabulary to speak it easily, but he had such a strong model that within a year, he was pretty much fluently speaking English, comfortable with North American expressions and the slang that was appropriate for a young man of his age. Going back to music, when you're reading the notes directly, it's really easy to miss a note or a rhythm when you're not sure what that note or rhythm sounds like in context. Sometimes a really high note or a really weird rhythm can look bad on the page, but it makes a lot of sense when you hear it in the context of a recording. By the time I was in university, reading errors at my violin lessons were actually an unacceptable mistake. I was, of course, allowed to make plenty of mistakes in my lessons because I was still learning, and I still am, but if I came in playing a blatant wrong note rather than just making a mistake on a note, my note, my teacher would know right away that I hadn't done my homework and I hadn't listened to the piece I was learning. So to get the strongest possible foundation to make sure you don't have to unlearn any notes, make sure that you have listened to your piece thoroughly before starting to play it. And in the long run, that's really going to help you to learn your piece faster because once you've established that aural model, you won't have to undo any wrong notes, which as you know, can really stick around if you've practiced them enough. There's another really important reason why you should be listening to your pieces and listening to certain specific recordings to be exact. And that is playing beyond the written notes. I think this is actually one of the most important benefits of listening to recordings, in my opinion. Our sheet music, although detailed, can't give us all of the stylistic information or knowledge of certain traditions that are associated with a piece of music. We have a lot of instruction, but we can't possibly write everything, all the details down. This is especially true for folk music of oral tradition, and that's why fiddle players typically don't use sheet music. It's just not detailed enough to capture all of the nuances of the style. Certain composers really try to give you all the instructions possible and they'll have very, very dense scores. And others, uh, certainly in, for instance, Baroque music, if you look at manuscripts of Bach, there's very little instruction. There's just the notes, maybe a few fortes and pianos in there, and the rest is kind of open to interpretation. Uh, But actually a lot of it was implied as violinists would be following Uh, certain standards and certain traditions. Let's go back to my language learning example again. So for context, my husband learned English from a French speaker at his school when he was in high school. In France, they teach British English, which, as you know, is the exact same language, but has a lot of stylistic differences to American English. If you're a native speaker of either language, it's really easy to forget just how different the slang is since you can understand both. But even though you can understand British slang, it sounds really weird if you're an American saying it. And you can try this if you're American, just read a page out loud from Harry Potter in your regular accent, and it just doesn't quite sound right. Just a little shout out and hello to my non-U.S. Canadian listeners, which is actually quite a percentage of you. I'm going to stick to the American-centric analogies for now just because that's the accent that I have and that's going to be best for my personal demonstration purposes, but this can be applied to literally any accent in any other language as well. 
I was planning on recording a couple sentences of British slang with my accent, but as to not embarrass myself, I thought I would embarrass my husband instead by sharing one of his real-life examples, with permission, of course. Cue an example from my husband's first outing with his new Anglophone friends in Canada. They were out to a pub and ordering a beer, and he proudly ordered the way that he learned from his French textbook— Uh, something along the lines of, I would fancy an IPA. And then cue all the 19-year-old boys laughing and laughing at him, telling him that he's trying to sound posh. And we don't fancy things in America, although if a British person says it, uh, we would understand that it means that you like something. But in America or in Canada, that's just not a term that we use. And it just sounds weird if We're the ones saying it, although it sounds very nice and very fancy if a British person is. But the more you're around Americans or Canadians, the more you know which expressions are from those countries, and the more it becomes clear if a certain phrase works in the context that you're saying it in. So all of this actually does relate back to music and why we're listening to recordings when we're talking about style. Let's look at Baroque music, for example. Generally, in Baroque music, the articulation of the notes generally has a lot less sustain, so things are less connected in the sound, and that's because of the historic design of early violins. The bow back then was a little bit shorter, it didn't really lend itself to long and sustained notes, and rather just gave a little bit more space and articulation, especially in eighth notes. If you've listened to a lot of Baroque music, especially played on period instruments, That's something that you're used to hearing, and without thinking about it, you may start to play your Baroque eighth notes in a more articulated way, which is how traditionally they are played. That's just something you're going to do intuitively, thanks to your general understanding and previous listening of the style of music. But if you don't have this background, if you're just given a sheet of music and maybe aren't aware that it's by a Baroque composer and you haven't listened to a lot of Baroque music... You may see eighth notes and just naturally play them more sustained. You know, that's what's written, so it's not technically wrong. But stylistically, it's kind of the same as an American saying that they fancy a beer. It sounds wrong to a native speaker, and it will sound wrong to someone who's familiar with the Baroque style style and tradition. And you wouldn't just know that from reading your music. It really comes with an understanding of the style, which you can only learn by listening. This might sound like it's it's a difficult thing that's going to take years and years to develop, but it's really not. If you're listening to classical music and violin music fairly consistently, either actively sitting down and listening to your piece or passively having it playing in the background, this is just something that you're going to get the hang of. And you don't need to be a musician at all or have any musical experience to get the benefits from this. I also wanted to touch on how violin is taught to little children that are starting their classical training from age four or five, sometimes even younger. I think that there's a lot that we can learn as adults from how children learn, and this is no exception. And listening in students of violin who are starting as small children, that is something that's really instilled to them from day one. It is one of the basics of the Suzuki violin education. The Suzuki method, if you're not familiar with it, it's something that I incorporate a ton of in my own teaching is one of the most popular classical violin training methods, and it's been around since the 40s, 
many of the world's top and professional violinists are former Suzuki kids. I'm also a former Suzuki kids. A lot of my violinist friends are as well. So this is a system that many, many violinists grew up with in some way or another. One of the core principles of teaching Suzuki is that the child should be constantly listening to the piece. Not only the one that they're currently learning, but all of the ones in the book and actually all the books. This will help them to prepare to approach the piece when they're ready and The Suzuki kids actually learn completely by ear at the beginning, and they don't use any sheet music. So having this model is really key to learning the piece successfully and for the teacher to be able to communicate with the student which part they're learning. The idea behind this is that children learn words after hearing them spoken hundreds of times by others. Dr. Suzuki, who founded the method, was inspired by language learning, and how children were able to develop their native tongue, which he called the mother tongue method. Bit of history of violin pedagogy there. In the Suzuki method, parents are encouraged to play the recordings of their entire book of study every single day as much as possible and ask any parent of a Suzuki kid how this goes and they can tell you that Twinkle Twinkle gets really old really fast Uh, It's a lot of repetition, but the kids love it. They thrive on repetition. It gets them excited to get to the next song because they already know it so well. Since this is how violin is taught to young children and has been proven to work time and time again, I think it's definitely something that we can draw from when you're learning yourself. Although I think there's ways to do it without playing Suzuki book one on repeat every single day, which will drive any adult crazy. I'll conclude this little section with a quote from Dr. Suzuki, which I think fits very, very nicely. And that is, listening until we remember is not enough. We must listen until we cannot forget. And I'm not even going to touch on memorization in this episode, but that is definitely something that, uh, that is definitely another huge benefit that we could talk another 20 minutes about. So recordings also allow us to learn through copying, and copying is how we learn all of our basic skills from childhood. Kid was going to learn by copying their parents, which is how you learned as well, and the same is really true in all art education. A painter will meticulously mirror every little detail of an oil painting, and as musicians, we actually learn how to play those same nuances, the ones that we talked about earlier, as the violinist in a recording to explore the control and the production of sound. And don't worry, being skilled at copying isn't going to hinder your creative development. Quite the opposite. It will improve your listening and control of the violin, which will in turn give you the tools to be able to express yourself in the future. Once you're able to successfully copy different recordings, then you can decide what you like and what you dislike about them, and then put them together in a version that best represents you and how you interpret the piece. So all in all, listening to recordings is going to give you the skills and the inspiration to be able to present your own interpretation. That concludes my explanation as to why you should be listening to recordings and all of the benefits that you get from doing that. Next week, I'm going to actually talk about how to use recordings. So I think that's actually just as important. And there's actually a few pitfalls that you can fall into um, once you're kind of 
out there and trying to find the best recordings, it can be a little bit overwhelming because there's just so many of them out there. So next week I'll be covering recordings that you should avoid, how to source a good recording, how to listen, and I'll be actually breaking down different audio examples and it's going to be really interesting, I think, to kind of do an an analysis together on this podcast so that you can do the same thing on your own when you're trying to put together a good oral model of whatever piece you're working on. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, I'll, in the show notes this week, I'm going to be sharing a little bit more about the history of violent education in children, that Suzuki method I was talking about. Some of you may have grown up actually playing it. It's been adapted for cello, for piano, for classical guitar, a lot of different instruments. But I think that we can really learn a lot from how kids learn and how kids are taught. So if you are interested in learning a little bit more about that, I send the full show notes as an email newsletter and you can sign up for that at violinclass.co slash newsletter. If you want to get in touch, just say hello, share where you're at in your violin journey, or if you have a suggestion for a future episode, I'd love to hear from you. And you can email me directly at violinclasspod at gmail.com or again through the website violinclass.co. And that's it for this week. I will catch you at the next one. Thank you for listening. Mm